name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. September 1st was an incredibly important date for derivatives markets. It marked the rollout of the sixth and final phase of regulatory margin requirements for non-cleared derivatives, which brought hundreds of entities into scope of the rules for the first time. Despite being by far the largest phase in terms of new entities since the implementation began in 2016, the September 1 deadline seemed to pass without any obvious market disruption, thanks to a massive industry effort to get over the line. But it's by no means the end of the journey. A large proportion of phase 6 entities haven't actually had to exchange any initial margin yet. That's because many haven't so far hit a 50 million euro equivalent initial margin exposure threshold with any of their counterparty groups. These firms will need to closely monitor their exposures and quickly prepare to exchange collateral if they approach the threshold with any particular trading partner. New entities will also come into scope over time, either as individual firms hit the compliance threshold of 8 billion euro equivalent in aggregate average notional amount of non-cleared derivatives, or as additional countries implement their own margin rules. It seems phase six will be with us for some time yet. The importance of being well prepared and having sufficient liquidity to meet margin requirements was brought into sharp focus later in September when a brutal sell-off in the UK gilt market following a government mini-budget left UK pension schemes facing huge variation margin calls on their derivatives positions, prompting some to sell assets to meet their obligations and resulting in an emergency purchase of gilts by the Bank of England. A similar dynamic of high volatility and high margin calls recently occurred in the energy markets too. It all means margin rules, practices and processes have been very much in the spotlight and they're the focus for this episode of The Swap. Here with me is ISDA's CEO, Scott Omalia. There's clearly a lot to cover here, Scott. So can you give us a a, a brief overview of what you'll be talking about? Sure. Well, as you said, the final phase of the initial margin rules came into effect on September 1. I'd like to ask our guests their insight as to how it went and what the pressure points were in this final phase. But as you said, it's not only the end of phase six, because entities still, many more have to come into scope, those that haven't reached that threshold you mentioned. So I'd like to understand what firms are expecting in terms of their readiness and what still needs to happen to get them ready and over the line. Essentially, I'm going to ask them what portion of the market they thought is done and what portion of the market still needs to get to work. So essentially, the next bit will be what comes next in the margin question. And I suspect the answer is automation. We still rely on manual processes that take too long and we're not availing ourselves to digital solutions that can really make this much more efficient, much more accurate, and save everybody a lot of time and money. Of course, we can't talk about the margin issue without touching on these recent market volatility as well. And this is a really a live issue and certainly spotted by the Bank of England at an important time to address and buy gilts to protect that market. So I'll ask our guests for their perspective on what's happening as well. Sounds good. Well, we have a couple of terrific guests who really know this subject inside out. You'll be talking to Wayne Forsyth, Managing Director and Global Head of Collateral Relationship Management at State Street, and Liz Lindsay, MD and Head of Collateral at Bank of Montreal. So over to you, Scott. Wayne, Liz, thank you very much for joining us today. Now, we've experienced two really big events in recent weeks, 
The first is the rollout of the sixth phase of the initial margin requirements for non-cleared derivatives. And the second is the extreme market volatility, which has resulted in big jumps in margin requirements for certain firms and in certain sectors. Let's start with the current market volatility. Obviously, margin is meant to increase as volatility rises, but do you have any observations on the market and the regulatory response to big issues around the pension issue in the UK and then certainly energy markets as the Russian crisis has exacerbated volatility there? Wayne, let's start with you. Great. Thanks, Scott. I think I'd hit on a couple of different points here. The first point I would highlight is that when you look at times of volatility, it, it really does validate the path that the industry has been on to ensure that we have appropriate levels of collateral that are not only exchanged on a day-to-day basis, but have been you know, fully segregated. So I think it validates the approach that we've been working through. From a pure operational approach, what we have certainly seen is that the increase of call volume has many knock-on effects. It does challenge firms in that there's additional costs that they have to be cognizant of. It can force them into potentially altering the portfolio makeup as they raise additional liquidity to ensure that they can meet higher call and margin volumes. When processes and operations have not been fully automated, times of volatility are going to highlight the cracks in the system. And so firms that find themselves in a less than ideal operational state uh, tend to struggle more as they deal with higher call volumes and ensuring that they meet their obligations. Liz, what are your thoughts on this? Yes, from our perspective, too, we've seen a lot of volatility. We've seen margin call volumes jump. And because of the rates moving so drastically, 15 to 20 basis point movements every other day seem to be the new flavor of the day. So it puts collateral management teams on high alerts for sure. We've seen some of that market volatility spill out into like, you know, mortgage-backed security originators getting into some liquidity concerns. We've seen UK interest rates rise, and that puts a lot of pressure on hedging long-term liabilities on the balance sheet. And when those rates move, especially when they spike, bond values are dropping, and so you're collecting more margin. We've also seen that European financial institutions, and again, back to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, just putting some pressure on the credit default swap market as well. So over and above margin call volumes, we've seen margin call disputes spike as well. It just puts collateral management teams on very high alert. Do either of you have the impression that people just didn't see this coming? The energy crisis, the Russia crisis, but the volatility has been with us for some time. Maybe the pension crisis kind of snuck up on us due to the swift reaction the market had to the fiscal strategies of the UK government. Are people caught flat-footed or are they better prepared? We go through periods of this every couple of years, it seems. If you refer back to the beginning of the COVID period, We had huge periods of volatility in the March, April 2020 timeline. You certainly saw some of the same types of effects in terms of challenges to the global infrastructure. We'd like to think that we all learn our lessons, but I think the reality is it's a continual journey. I don't think we're flat-footed, but it will never cease to present us challenges that we have to be prepared for. Liz, you mentioned the CDS market, and obviously with higher interest rates, a little stress on the business due to potential or likely recessions, we could see the increase in defaults. I guess we can warn them, be prepared. (laughs) 
think about your your insurance product. What do you think about that? I would say that our risk partners in our institution, again, are on high alert with any of our counterparties that are heavily invested into credit default swaps. And so that red monitoring list has been growing a little bit bigger. And definitely I agree with Wayne. The technology is always evolving and changing. And because of these sort of crises that we're encountering, the enhanced reporting, that holistic view across your counterparties is becoming more and more important. And where normally you have disparate groups looking into this, the financial institution overall wants that one top of the house holistic view, and that can present challenges for the technology. Yeah. How are firms ready from a just a purely operation standpoint? Are they being able to move that collateral as swiftly as they need to? We've made inroads on that. We've not gotten to an optimal state across the industry by any stretch of the imagination. When you think about this whole concept of optimization, I think the reality is optimization takes on many, many forms, whether it's optimization of the portfolios to minimize the need for collateral, or is it an optimization of how you're looking at your asset utilization? What we do find is that in periods of volatility, like we find ourselves now, firms that have been you know, really, I guess you could say, cutting it very close to the vest in terms of the available assets that they would utilize for collateral, all of a sudden those levels may not be sufficient. Potentially firms that have common pools of assets that they're using for both margin and for financing, I'd like to say you've got a lot of hands in the cookie jar then. And so when you're doing that, that's when, again, technology plays a profound role in how you think about what assets you're going to use, where do you use them, and most importantly, where do you want to use them? This is no longer just a back office function. This is where collateral management now sits, not just with the back office, but takes it purely into the front office. So those tools, the information, and putting it in the hands of the investment professionals is really key. And that's what we've seen is that it's a continual journey from the back to the middle to the front. I think it's going to continue to evolve that way. Liz, anything you want to add on operations? I think it comes down to having a real-time view of your box or your unencumbered assets, stratifying those, knowing what's in there, and then as groups go in and use them or take them, the ability to tag them in real-time so that you know that they are truly there so that someone else doesn't sort of snatch them up on you. The technology, the demand is more for real time, stratifying the assets in the box. I think from a kind of liquidity or capital purpose, independent amounts or initial margin, they typically have a detrimental impact to the net stable funding ratio. And so the only way to mitigate that detrimental impact is to utilize lower quality collateral. And so we now have a demand not only for good quality and medium quality, you have it for lower quality as well. Always we want to send cheapest to deliver out the door first. Well, we'll come back to this operational question, but let's first turn to the other big event that we just wrapped up in September, and that's the regulatory initial margin rules. 
From your impressions, how did the phase six deadline in September 1st go? And did the market experience any issues? It went pretty good. There were a large bucket of counterparties there. A lot of primarily managed accounts under investment managers, some hedge funds, some smaller banks. But what we encountered was a bit of a tranche of counterparties that come to the table with a fair less experience than the other phases. So this group, you had to bring them on a little bit more and some of them and the legal counsel weren't really understanding the rules and the nuances and sort of how to apply. So typically we did a little bit more hand-holding, explaining and helping And it sort of wasn't taken as a hard deadline because the trading volumes were lower with this tranche of counterparties. And so we could take our time. And the vast majority of them, we don't have them papered with CSAs, but we continue to trade by putting threshold monitoring in place. And then we just monitor at a 50% trigger level to the threshold allocations that we've just have deemed to be appropriate for the counterparties. So that's how we handled phase six. What about your perspective, Wayne? I'd echo a lot of what Liz has said here. I think this largely went as expected. I think the industry had some lessons learned from previous phases and I think that reflected in the preparation levels and our ability to progress through the September 1st deadline. I do compliment many of my peers within the industry. I think you saw a good deal of us working together for the mutual good of our clients. In a lot of cases, this has required a good deal of interaction because the interoperability of the infrastructure is, is key with this. Documentation certainly was, you know, again, it was the biggest hurdle. We've seen that in all the phases, ability to have the documentation, both from a CSA perspective, but also the custodial and the tri-party documentation certainly was a bit of a crush with that. I think everyone worked on a prioritized approach to it with the portfolios that had the greatest potential for an early breach and necessitating an exchange of collateral, those certainly bubbling to the top and Again, I saw a good turnaround and being able to make sure those were taken care of, but also agree that the challenges in that driving this down to, in some cases, institutions that are not accustomed to dealing with regulations of this sort, it has required a good deal of handholding. There's no doubt about that as we try to walk our clients through this and making sure that they are, are prepared for everything. And we have the new dynamic with, in some cases, very low thresholds being applied to some of the managed accounts that are spread across multiple investment managers. That does open the door to an earlier breach at a much lower level. But again, I think there's still a tail up there. We're all going to be working through this and continuing to make sure that we have this prepared and the threshold monitoring is key. So making sure that we understand what levels we're at and making that fully transparent to all the impacted clients. Any of you want to call what percentage we completed around the September 1 deadline, and therefore how much more do we have to do throughout the rest of this year and into next year to bring phase six fully into scope? If I had to try to bucket it, I would say we probably are maybe 50% of the way there. I saw a good number of clients that were doing a level of prioritization around 
ensuring they had ability to trade as of September 1st. That's a common group of resources that are spanning the entire industry. So I think most of them agreed that they needed to put their major counterparties first, but they will be moving on with the total book so that, again, there's no limitations to how they distribute the trades. So 50-50 is probably, I think, the best case you could say out there. But I would highlight that we haven't seen any level of disruption to it either. The wheels have certainly not come off. September 1 came and went very smoothly. Liz, do you want to take the over or the under on Wayne's 50-50 guess there in terms of (laughs) market readiness? I was going to go a little wee bit higher. (laughs) Maybe 60-65%. I think we sort of got through as an institution and some of the stragglers will probably move into threshold monitoring. I think most of the the vast majority of the counterparties that we were going to paper with formal documentation, I, I would say we're pretty much done there. Now, according to ISDA analysis, we estimated that roughly 775 entities were eligible for September 1. So those are pretty significant numbers. So whether it's 50-50 or 65 percent. That's one, a huge volume in phase six, the largest we've seen and a great accomplishment. But either we have 35 percent or 40, 50 percent left to go. So we'll have to keep at it there going forward. Now, back to this operational question that I kind of unpicked earlier. All of this would, of course, be much easier if we had automated collateral workflows. It feels like to me that in so many of the regulatory implementations, whether it was phase one or phase six or reg reporting, some of these other things, it was all about getting compliance and getting over the line to make sure you're in compliance. And then we're kind of thinking, the industry's kind of thinking about, oh, wow, maybe there's a better way to do this. Is there maybe a, a different way, a, a more optimized, more automated way? Let's start with Wayne on that one. I think that's a lot of good points, Scott. You know, when I think about automation, this is a journey. I don't know that we necessarily know what the finish line is going to be for that journey. And as we've worked through the challenges of UMR, what I found is that it certainly has been a a prioritization on our part to look at what's going to be most critical for the delivery of services related to UMR that has tended to be very focused on elements, you know, such as the upfront exchange of data, utilization of industry utilities, and how we can exchange information to make sure that we have common views for our clients. I think we've been very focused in aspects such as that. When we think about it, though, it really does highlight there's still other elements of the process that still are somewhat manual on how we go about doing things. And so I think as we now look ahead, I think one thing is clear to me, UMR has been a catalyst for change. It's highlighted areas that we need to focus on. But in a lot of cases, we didn't have the technology or the the investment to be able to put it towards these others. So I think many of us are going to be, as we think ahead to our 2023, 2024 planning, there's other areas we want to be focusing on, how it benefits not just TC, but you know, again, it highlights the need for collateral and other products and TBAs, how we collateralize those, secondary collateral on repos clients that are utilizing lines of credit. Again, you're talking about a very common process and where we can apply lessons learned and the principles, it's only going to benefit us across multitude of disciplines here. 
Liz, what areas of collateral management process are most in the need of further automation and what benefits could they bring here? Getting different systems to talk to each other, it would be so wonderful to have that view where you've got your margining data, your margin dispute data, and your settlements data kind of all lined up and contributing to a single report. I think that is an area that needs to be improved. A lot of the settlement systems that we have they assume contractual settlement is successful and you don't find about failures until the next day. So real-time settlements information that would be housed in a different application but fed into the collateral management system. One of the areas that we thought this would greatly improve is the concept of collateral spikes and ensuring that you're not returning independent amounts or initial margin or even variation margin back to your counterparty if a transactional cash flow did not settle successfully. And if you don't know about that until the next day, you may inadvertently return some collateral that you probably shouldn't have. So that kind of holistic view or a hub where different applications are talking to each other and where you could produce a report that brings all that data in, that I think would be hugely beneficial, particularly in these markets that we're encountering right now. So what needs to happen to achieve that objective, to digitize and automate more of this product so you you have your info hub or your dashboard right in front of you to see what the cheapest to deliver is and what the status of all your collateral is? What steps need to be taken? It could go two ways. It could be that one of those systems becomes your primary hub and it receives data. You'd have to put a very sophisticated or an enhanced report writer tool onto that. Like, for instance, if we designated the collateral management system as that hub that will bring data in from the other two primary areas, definitely sophisticated report writers and aggregators would have to be added to that tool. The other thing you could do is maybe have your aggregator or report writer as a standalone application, and then you're bringing in data from three different systems to, again, consolidate, do some dashboarding so you can see across counterparties from all three perspectives. Now, some of the work, Wayne, that we at ISDA have been doing is tied to developing common taxonomies, standard operating procedures, working with the industry to build that consensus about how we hold and manage data, how we describe lifecycle events, and then establishing a best practice so people can kind of get their arms around some of these things to bring just best practice forward and automate it. How do you think about this problem? And is there anything more ISDA needs to be doing? I think you've really hit the nail on the head, Scott. Automation is not just within the four walls of your firm. Automation is you know, taking into context that this is a very end-to-end process. And in your cross-section of the parties that are involved in that, you have underlying clients, you have their investor managers, you have administrators, plus multitudes of custodians and counterparties. And this intertwining of all that and how the infrastructure comes together 
the only way you can really build automation on that end-to-end basis is when everyone is looking at how we can use standards to drive that interoperability. So again, whether it's your upfront documentation, think about the ways that we exchange information. Got to get away from paper CSAs. I think everyone agrees with that. But again, the pathway to doing that is sometimes challenging. I think we all admit that. But how we can find automation to digitize this information, to promote common views of the information, whether it's CSAs, whether it's portfolio. And these are the areas that you eliminate the friction in the marketplace and you better achieve the goals that both individual firms as well as the global regulators have which is how do you remove the systemic risk that can result from these lack of automations? Because what it comes down to is that perhaps the noise of a reconciliation is not relevant, but it can hide underlying deficiencies to and and a point of risk to any firm in the process. So driving standards is key, driving the automation is key. And again, I think we're going to continue to uncover where we need to be focused on. Can I ask either one of you, are we still using fax machines in this business? There are actually a couple counterparties out there who requested it and we declined, but they're, yes. (laughs) That should be a hard no. There should be no fax machines. Fax machines are not our digital solution. So we're prepared to digitize the CSA. We have it underway. We've even put all eligible collateral under the common domain model. So we'll be able to really link that up so everybody's systems can use it. And that, of course, is open source, so people can tap into that. Now, another aspect, when you touch on this, it's not just within our four walls. It's got to be interoperable and technology itself and the backbone of how we exchange information and data is important. And frequently, we're always told that blockchain's the answer or distributed ledgers is the answer to any of our problems. But in short, is blockchain a potential solution here to give us that immutable ledger solution that we can put everything on the chain and solve some other problems? When I think about the technology, one of the things that I think is key is that you're using technology to provide a solution to a problem. You don't want the technology to be, in essence, in search of a problem. So we think about whether it's blockchain, distributed ledger, or potentially other forms. I think we have to clearly think about, okay, what's the use case? What's the problem that we're trying to solve? And then use the innovation to help us come up with what that better mousetrap ultimately will be. There certainly is, again, you think about the nature of blockchain and that it does provide an immutable record of the contract in question. There's a ton of value in that. One of the benefits that we're going to find now as we move past the unclear margin period is that we can all start to think about those types of challenges. You made a mention of the common domain model, how you're digitizing CSAs. Ultimately, if the, if the form that Digital Ledger provides the best platform to do it, I think firms will gravitate towards that. But no single firm is going to solve this on their own. This is going to be something of looking at the fabric of the industry infrastructure. And as that evolves, as market participants, we can find ways to adapt and bring it home to the clients. Liz, what about you? DLT, the answer here? I agree that common taxonomy and standardized data would go a long way to contributing to the ability to deploy blockchain or distributed ledger technology within the collateral space. 
especially from a UMRIM perspective, the eligible collateral schedules are quite complex and there's so many different eligibility parameters that kind of tag to each piece of collateral. And I was thinking that, well, I have to enter that into our system. Our optimization team has to enter it into their system. Our custodian has to enter it into their system. And our counterparty is doing the same. So you've kind of got six different people literally inputting the exact same data. And so having it kind of deploy and agree at the top of a network level and then spill down and populate seems to be a fantastic idea to me. I'm not 100% sure it could be used in that exact application, but if it could be, it would be wonderful. Well, that's what our objective is here. We're going to take bits and pieces of the collateral lifecycle and In some areas, we think there's a best practice that needs to be implemented. In some other cases, turning proper data and and taking the rules and bringing them together so you can have a eligible collateral schedule and begin to work off of that. And we do acknowledge it's complex, but that's also one of the long poles in the tent that need to be solved to really bring automation here. So if you can really deliver a solution like that, the other stuff can follow on pretty easily. And then you turn these into rules and begin to attach valuation and update that in real time. You've really got something going there. Liz, I want to ask you if you see the opportunity for tokenized securities and actually using digital assets like Bitcoin or Ether. And I know it's not being done now, but do you see a time in our future when these could be used as collateral at some point? What do you think about that? I can't say I'm an expert here, but I do think that there is definitely a future for tokenized securities in the collateral space. I think many firms, no matter what type of tranche of collateral assets, they all seem to be in demand. And I think the only thing that sort of needs to be done is more work from regulators to make it sort of a level playing field. I think the SEC will play a big role in this in making the standards and the governance framework that is held over other public firms and financial institutions. If that were deployed and rolled out to all these firms offering tokenized securities, I think the market would gain comfort and reliability. I do believe that they will shortly contribute and be in our collateral space. Wayne, there's no space for both a fax machine and digital asset CSAs. But what do you think the future holds for crypto products like this for collateral? I think the short answer is yes. I think we are going to see this will become part of our infrastructure at some point. Now, I think the question is always going to be timing. When you think about the different types of solutions that are out there, one thing that that's certainly on the documentation front that I think is it really becomes more of a tailwind to the evolution into digital is that you don't have a legacy infrastructure you're trying to overcome. One of the impediments that you're having to deal with on the actual, let's call it the settlement of the assets, is that we have a highly evolved and very complex type of infrastructure that it ultimately, when you talk about cash, there's one way cash is exchanged. And 
as digital becomes part of that infrastructure, it's how it coexists during that period where you need to know that you have an immutable record of who owns the asset. There's only upside in how we can move towards use of tokenized assets. That brings us to the point of being able to exchange on a much more real-time basis. As those things happen, it is the future. I think we're all going to be looking at, okay, how do we do so in a very risk-averse type of, of method? And that, again, to what Liz said, I think the regulators stepping in to provide that level playing field will help us facilitate that. And again, avoiding some type of unintended consequence of a risk that perhaps we haven't even thought of yet. So we'll be moving forward, but in a, hopefully a cautious and prudent manner as well. That's another area where he's just doing a little bit of work to make sure we bring the crypto world in with the traditional finance world. In our digital asset working group, we are unpacking some important questions around how do we all agree on a standard practice and document this in a new crypto definition or digital asset definition. Things like settlement, settlement finality, valuation, how you deal with forks in the code. All of these things have to kind of be agreed to on a more universal basis and up front to make sure that institutional players can reliably trade and, and engage in this front. Granted, I'm not diminishing the regulatory certainty element here, but there's a lot of things that we can as an industry kind of start to unpack and bring everybody together to establish a best practice. Another area that's emerging outside of digital assets is environmental products and green assets that many people are beginning to trade. And so we're beginning to have two pools of assets, both green and brown. Is there a chance in our future that we will exchange green collateral, that people who say, I want to only have green products or green assets in this, in my buckets, and I only want to trade in these kind of products? How do you see these fitting into the collateral management program? I think they will become part of the pie of collateral assets. I think maybe a couple things for consideration would be just defining or sourcing the market data to ascertain if the asset meets the environmental, social, and governance eligibility criteria. So I think our independent third-party sources of market data need to sort of expand that data element. Other than that, green bonds definitely could be used in the future and companies who seem to have high ESG scores typically tend to be a bit more stable and may issue better quality collateral. So those are just some things that I've been thinking about as it pertains to ESG assets. Wayne, I kind of go back to the beginning of our conversation and think about available collateral and making sure we don't get in a liquidity crisis and having any problems. And I'm not saying that to diminish the ESG. I think it's here to stay, but we do have a transition issue here and to make sure that we have sufficient resources that we can actually trade deep liquid products, make sure we have assets that can meet their objectives. How do you think about the transition to ESG or green collateral? I don't think at the core you can ever remove the fact that the primary objective of collateral management is to you know, ensure risk is mitigated. So as ESG moves forward, I think, you know, point number one, I think it's inevitable that it will. The financial products that underpin all of this are a reflection of the values in society. And so as that becomes a more important facet, you're going to see financial products evolve and have a demand and it will evolve to that point. 
I think Liz's point around the data is key. I think we all have to understand how that will allow us to have a clear and transparent idea of which assets will fit the description. And as operations managers, we'll be incorporating that into how we think about it. It is going to bring complexity to it. There's no doubt about that. But we're going to have to evolve with it because I do think it will happen. In talking to some industry colleagues of mine, there's regulations that will be forthcoming in certain jurisdictions. So we're going to see that starting to become a bigger factor. And we're going to have to think about how do we ultimately implement it. And again, it's got to learn to coexist with how we use other types of assets as well, how we, how we gauge that criteria. I'd like to wrap up the podcast with a question to get to know you a little bit better. Not many kids grow up and say, geez, I want to be in collateral. How did you each find a career in collateral management? And is this a sector that you would recommend to somebody new? Wayne? For me, collateral was an evolution. So I kind of worked through different aspects of working in the banking side of the industry. You know, I found it fascinating as I got into it and my timing was great because I had three months of peace and then Lehman Brothers hit and everything has been a continual whirlwind since that point. I always joke with my peers though. And the question is, is collateral going to be, is this going to take me through to retirement? And I think short answer very well could. We talk about ESG. We talk about all these things that are changing. We're getting through UMR and we've already got a list of 10 different things we're going to be focused on. Change is going to continue to be there. And Again, I go back to what I said a minute ago. This is all about how you mitigate risk. That never goes away. We need to bring in fresh ideas. Again, generations younger than myself, they're going to think about things differently. And we need that innovation to help us to not be siloed in how we think about it and to help us expand because there are better ways to do things. We all know that. But sometimes if you get into a singular way of thinking, you're not going to find it. I think financial services is going to continue to evolve. It's not just collateral. That's across the ecosystems. It's evolving. It's changing. But the challenges are going to be there for the best and brightest. We can definitely use them in in this collateral space. Liz, this is, all kidding aside, a super important industry. It does manage risk. It is part of every trade now. How did you get in and what's the future look like to you in collateral? Well, I came from the private equity space at my firm, and at the time they were recognizing that they wanted to give collateral management a lot more exposure and importance in the group, especially following the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And so they spun the collateral management group out from under the legal documentation group and sort of set us on our own, and I was asked to head that group up. So for the past 10 years, I've been leading this group, and I have seen so much change happen in the decade I love the collateral space. I would highly recommend it to a young person starting out with the career. Like the interactions are just off the charts. I get to deal with legal people, various risk groups, regulators, optimization people, front office. You you touch in liquidity, capital, custodians, counterparties. Like it's very much a people industry its relationships to the nth degree. And they're fabulous. And even our conversation today about the challenges that 
you can look forward to, this is the space for a young person to get into. I think they'd have a fabulous, rewarding and challenging career. It's been great talking to you both about this interesting topic, and we've only scratched the surface, but we're going to have to leave it there. Wayne, Liz, thanks for coming onto The Swap. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Scott, we heard about some of the issues that firms faced in preparing for the phase six margin rules. But Liz and Wayne reiterated what we talked about at the start, that this isn't the end and more entities are going to come into scope over time. Can you briefly outline some of the industry tools that firms can use to help with their compliance efforts? Of course. Well, one of the big advantages of being later in the phases is that firms can use a variety of tried and tested solutions to help with their compliance. That includes the ISDA standard initial margin model, an industry-wide tool that eliminates the need for each firm to develop its own margin calculation methodology, cutting down on the potential for disputes. And we've also developed standard regulatory compliant credit support documentation, which we referenced a couple of times in this podcast today, and eligible collateral templates as well as initial margin self-disclosure letters. All of these things help speed up the process and exchange collateral with the various counterparties. And on top of that, firms can use the ISDA Create online platform to negotiate and execute ISDA credit support documentation and certain custodian account control agreements, bringing in much greater efficiency into the process, tracking your documentation, tracking your negotiations. It just keeps everything in one spot, speeds things up, and all of the information and data is downloaded to help address the issue of tracking your progress as well as digitization. All of those issues are valuable to the margin process and things that ISDA has developed to help our members complete this work in the most efficient way possible. So if you're not using them, you can always look into the ISDA Margin Hub on our website, which has all the information about what's expected from counterparties that must exchange collateral. And it's a very useful tool that many institutions have already taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. The ISDA Margin Info Hub is on the website. Anyone can go and have a look at that. And everything else that Scott mentioned as well, ISDA Create, ISDA Sim, all of that is available on the ISDA website. But that's all from us. Please do watch out for forthcoming episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.